Hey everyone. Um, I just want to say what an incredible privilege it is to be with you this Sunday. Um, I cannot explain to you how much I miss you all. Um, being able to come up and be with you multiple times a year for, it's probably about 10 or 11 years um, back when I lived in New York, uh, were some of the sweetest moments I had, um, some of the best moments I had, and some of the best community I had. So just getting a chance to see you online fills my heart with such incredible joy. Um, and I love, uh, as we were worshiping and as other things were happening, scrolling through all of the pictures um, and your faces online. Um, it is does my heart a world of good. So thank you so much for this opportunity. Um, Dick asked me to do two things. Um, he said, why don't you give a short um, update on how you're doing and how ministry is going and then start in on the sermon. So let me do that. Um, my family is doing fine. Um, I would say we've been here about 18 months now and um, the children have adjusted to the point that um, they will still say when asked, where are you from and where do you live? They still say New York because they are New Yorker kids. Um, but they do acknowledge that there may be some very small um, good things about living here in the Chicagoland area. And so, uh, but overall, they're doing fine, um, have made friends, have adjusted at school, and have grown. So we're grateful. Um, my wife um, is doing well as well. She, she was the reason we moved back to Chicago. She uh, took a job at Lurie's Children's Hospital. Uh, she works in infectious disease. Uh, with HIV AIDS patients. So for the last few weeks as COVID-19 has grown, um, her job has gotten comprehensively busier um, in part because as an infectious disease doctor, she's part of the hospital that is mobilized to respond and partially because her patients are all um, immunocompromised and therefore very high risk. And so uh, regularly my kids, when she comes home, will ask her, did you test anyone today? And uh, ask what protective gear she had on. And so um, that's become reasonably all-consuming for her. Um, but otherwise, uh, like many of you, um, I'm sheltering in place with my children uh, while Jen is out at the hospital. And so I'm mostly just trying to adjust to um, work uh, as well as caring for kids uh, at the same time, as many of you are as well. So um, fully uh, fully understand that. Um, one of the things that's happening on InterVarsity side, um, as Dick mentioned, I work with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, a ministry to colleges and universities. Um, we're, of course, watching our mission field disappear in front of us as universities close. And so part of what we've been trying to do is pivot to meet those needs. Um, and I think needs fall in sort of three categories. Um, obviously, they're physical needs. Um, there are students who... Um, we're on spring break or at school who've been told you need to move home now. And so our staff have been trying to mobilize resources to help students get home. Um, in some cases, students don't have a home to go back to. If you're an international student, your ability to buy a plane ticket and go back home um, is severely limited right now because in fact, some countries have closed their borders to the United States. And so um, st my uh, staff worker at RPI uh, spent a good part of a week contacting local churches asking if there were anybody in those churches who would take in an international student for what's really an indeterminate period of time. Now, many of them are able to get home, um, but it may take a week or two before they're able to get the right clearance and or get tickets. 
Um, other staff have told us that as schools move to digital curricula, what we're doing now is impossible because those students don't own computers. And so I know a staff worker in California who's um, been spending time trying to acquire Chromebooks uh, so that his community college students can actually access school because they were using the school's computers most of that time. So, and then um, this work that we do in some of the tribal colleges, um, particularly in Alaska and in the Wyoming area, they've said uh, students are going back to reservations and tribal territories that may or may not have internet access. And so they've been scrambling to find, um, can we find hotspots? Or if they're not in a um, shelter in place location, um, are there churches that would open their doors so that students with appropriate distances might be able to use a fellowship hall to access um, Wi-Fi so that they can get to their classes. So there are a lot of physical needs uh, students are managing. Um, there are also emotional needs, as you can imagine. Um, the people I'm particularly thinking about are college seniors. Um, for those of us who graduated from college here in the United States, you know those final three months um, are uh, busy, they're sweet, and they're precious. And so um, there are art students who have spent their entire year, if not their four years at college, preparing for a senior recital, a senior show, or a senior art exhibit that will no longer happen. And so all of the work that they've put in to develop this thing that they could show, um, they have nobody to show it to. And while that seems small, if that's been the focus of your, minute, of your life for four years to perfect these things that you can invite people to participate in, um, it's an incredible loss as they grieve that. And so one of the things I've been doing with InterVarsity is asking, could we create um, a digital art gallery for seniors to show their senior exhibit or to post um, their dance performance or how do we equip churches in June or July when we start meeting again or in May could you invite a senior um, who is going to sing or dance offer them a little time during a church service so that they could um, offer at least to one audience a little bit of what they were doing um, I was reading a, a prayer letter from one of our staff who works at Juilliard and he said there are three or four students who are just inconsolable because it's not just the performances it's all of the friendships that suddenly ended uh, in person um, many of them said I didn't even have time to say goodbye properly to my friends and I thought I had four months to really savor these friendships I developed and then obviously the last thing that we're trying to figure out is how do we serve students spiritually and so um, we also have become experts in zoom uh, we're leading a lot of bible studies on zoom right now um, including putting the text of scripture in a shared screen and having people annotate it using Zoom so that they were able to study the same passage of scripture very literally and have conversations. And what I've loved is that as we've been doing it, students have said, well, I can invite my friends to a digital Bible study. And so we've actually watched students become Christians over the last week or two. Um, in fact, as schools were closing down in New York City two weeks ago, um, the staff in New York said, we've saw more conversions in this past week than we have in the rest of the, any other week in the rest of the year, because students are wrestling with ultimate questions. Um, they're desperate to meet together. And our student Bible study leaders are asking questions like, what does this passage mean to you? And would you give your life to Jesus? Uh, another great story I heard from California at Fullerton was they had a virtual large group, a little bit like we're doing now, a worship service. And one of the students posted um, the fact that her chapter was gonna have a virtual large group meeting. On her Instagram feed, a high school senior dropped in because she knew that student and heard the message that a college student was giving online and decided to give her life to Jesus that night. And so we're actually watching students who would never cross our doors 
um, end up logging in uh, and meeting Jesus. And so all throughout university, we're trying to make these changes, um, even as our staff are wrestling with all the things that you are. So thanks for your prayers for college students um, in this moment. Um, the last group I'll mention beyond the seniors in terms of what they're losing out on, on athletic events that they won't be able to play in or artistic events is um, they're entering a job market that has been um, completely disrupted and an internship market that doesn't exist uh, for um, you know, sophomores, juniors, uh, and freshmen. Uh, and those of us who um, were employed or looking for employment in 2008 remember what that's like to enter a job market where all of a sudden the jobs that you thought would be there no longer exist and the industries that you thought you might be able to join um, reeling and trying to hold on. And so if you know college seniors, um, this is a wonderful time to come alongside them. Uh, what they really need, I think, is the kind of mature faith that many of you have, uh, which can say, it's an incredibly difficult year. Um, it may be an incredibly difficult set of years as our economy and our society recover. I've lived through decades like that before. Um, and I want to walk with you. And I want to um, talk to you a little bit about what faith looks like. Um, when you're not merely experiencing a few months of disruption, but you've experienced years of disruption. And I know many of you well enough to know you know those stories and you've lived those stories. Um, and there's something about an older brother or sister coming alongside you, um, not with um, a quick answer or not a Bible verse that will cure issues, but to say, can I share with you what that four-year period of my life looked like uh, when things were very difficult? Um, or as what I love about your church and I shared with a leader of another church recently, um, at least you used to, I think, um, share unfinished stories. Um, I loved that when I would come to visit and speak at CBC. And I think often with college seniors, what they need to hear now are unfinished stories uh, because they need to know that their story is not yet done and that there's hope for them. So that's a quick update or maybe not so quick update for me. Um, let's turn to the passage of scripture that we had read earlier. Um, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, and let me pray. Father, you are good. And um, in a day when um, many people around the world um, question whether you are good, uh, in a day when um, what we see most obviously around us is chaos and fear and selfishness and greed, um, where we see pain and loss, um, we as a church continue to say you are good. Um, we do so in faith because we have watched you uh, be faithful to us individually and collectively, not just over days, months, or years, but over the decades. We say you're good because we understand what you accomplished in Jesus' death and resurrection, that you began the process there of reversing the effects of the fall. You began the process there, um, as Craig prayed, of uh, bringing um, all things under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, so that one day all things will be made new, that you will wipe away every tear from our eye, that they will, people will no longer hunger nor thirst, but you, the Lamb, will be the center of their lives, and you will shepherd them in the places that they need to go. We declare you are good because this is the most prophetic and pastoral thing that we can say right now. Um, in the midst of everything that we experience, we affirm your goodness. And so as we engage the scripture, help us to hear your voice, um, bend our hearts and uh, minds to honor you, and then glorify yourself, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.
Um, I don't know about you, um, but if you're like me, I've spent the last week uh, or so scrambling to um, shelter at home. And I know in New York, you're about a week or two ahead of where we are in Chicago. So you have been sheltering at home longer than I have. And particularly being so close to New Rochelle and other places, I suspect more of you have been impacted more quickly than we have. But doesn't shelter at home seem like such a restful, restorative, peaceful kind of thing, right? Sheltering brings all the images of, well, you know, being in a log cabin somewhere where you're cared for and safe. It's um, peaceful to shelter at a place. And when you're sheltering at home, what could be a safer, more comfortable, delightful place to be? And yet, I suspect that's not been our experience. Um, at least that's not been my experience here in Chicago in the last week as we've now been sheltering in place. Um, we've been frenetic. Uh, I, we've been canceling travel. This is the first time in probably six years I've had no flights um, pre-booked on an airline. My wife has been canceling business trips. We've been canceling spring break trips. Um, we've been rescheduling appointments, moving them online or offline. Um, canceling them, rescheduling them, um, setting up our kids for digital learning and a schedule. In our case, um, our school district won't even release digital curricula until another week from now because they've taken these first five days as snow days, which are acts of God, and next week was supposed to be spring break. So in this neighborhood, um, parents have two weeks with their children with no external um, set of schedules and we're trying to do it on our own while we are working from home. And I say working because it's highly interrupted work. Uh, here at our house, we've already had daily meltdowns, confessions, tears, and requests for forgiveness, and that's just me. My kids haven't even gotten involved with that. And there's been this enormous interruption, right, in our regular life. And so one of the questions I think we have to wrestle with during this pandemic is what if God is using this pandemic to invite us into the workshop of spiritual transformation? That in fact, without commenting on the why of the pandemic or how to justify pain and evil in the world, if in fact our experiences that we're having right now are actually the doorway that God is inviting us into to disciple us, to discipline us, and to shape us. Um, I think a mistake that we often make as we think about spiritual formation is that the rest of life is an interruption to the way that God spiritually forms us. But in fact, it's the very context in which he does so. Um, um, uh, an author I know uh, was teaching an university staff group that I was a part of. And he said, um, often we describe work as the problem. And if we could only cease from working, we could do more with our spiritual formation. And he said, given that God called you to work eight to 10 hours or 12 hours a day, depending on how your job schedule works, don't you think that's the actual context for how he intends to disciple you as much as any of the other activities we think of as more spiritual? Silence and solitude, um, quietness and prayer. Now, those are all essential because we need some specific things that help us pay attention to God. But what happens if we thought of everyday life as the actual context for our workshop of transformation? So let me take us back before we tackle my section of this passage to remember a month ago. A month ago seems like an eternity now, doesn't it? 
can you even remember how ordinary life felt a month ago? Um, Dick preached on how spiritual transformation begins with our identity in Romans 8, 12 through 17. Do you remember that far back when we used to go to work? When we used to wander and talk to friends, we could actually hug and greet each other at church? Hard to remember almost. But if you think back five weeks ago, Dick reminded us, right, we are adopted children of God and no longer slaves to the flesh, which is the heart of what Paul was talking about in that Romans passage, chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. Um, and it's from this place of security, you already belong to God. You don't need to do anything else to cause him to delight in you, to be pleased with you, to treasure you, right? He is already guaranteed that he will further develop you into Christ-likeness. You don't need to worry. And so with that sense of confidence and hope and delight, we then begin to pursue these aspects of spiritual transformation, right? That you don't work for it, and you work from it, from a deep sense of God already loves me. He delights in me, and therefore I want to pursue him. I wonder... How has this present crisis revealed a little bit more of our identity, or at least where we try to find our identity? I think it's been fascinating um, to watch how people have been responding to COVID-19. Um, and I expect what I'm experiencing is what you have experienced or are experiencing right now. Um, when we moved from New York City, we realized in New York City, it was very easy to be very isolated because you lived in you know, your little apartment and so you only saw people in the lobby, then you never saw anyone again until you exited. Um, and because of the way that New York City is so transient, everybody we knew kept changing. So when we moved here to Illinois, I thought I'm going to try to embed myself in the community more. I'm going to meet my neighbors, which I sort of have, but I also decided to join our town's Facebook page. Um, and I did this because I wanted to get to know people, the community, and its needs more. And I have to admit, uh, after a year and a half, I almost wish they were more abstract and a little less real to me than they seem to be now. Um, and you can see that, right, if you've been scrolling in social media and the news feeds, um, some people are just desperate for more information, right? They're constantly posting the latest CDC piece, the latest news piece. They're asking for more information. They are just desperately hoping if they could know enough and get enough information, they would feel like they had a sense of control over what is happening. Other people, some of us, right, have decided our best response to crisis is we are going to be busy. We're going to be busy cleaning and cooking and organizing not only ourselves, but our families and our neighbors, right? Like the way we respond to crisis is we activate, we make get things done. Um, others of us um, are acquiring. When in fear or when in tension, we start to buy. Um, and so you're seeing, right? Um, people are acquiring toilet paper and hand sanitizer and masks. And um, I was just at the grocery, right? Um, you would think bread would cure all ills, but all the bread aisle has been empty now for a week and a half. Um, and as one person posted on Facebook just this morning, it's fascinating how much hand sanitizer you think you need because if we don't use it, you're still going to get sick, no matter how much hand sanitizer you manage to have at your house. Others of us, right, are just emoting. Our response to crisis is emotion, um, fear and despair or anger or denial. Um, 
Others of us get really absorbed by the political posturing. Others of us are railing against someone, anyone. Um, some of us just eat when we're under stress and we're just eating and eating and it really helps that other people are cooking because we can eat it. Um, that maybe all of those I think apply to me. So I am eating while I'm scrolling for more information and cooking on the side. But I wonder what's been revealed about our identity in this past month or so. So many of the behaviors I've described, right, are rational and in fact needed. We need people to organize, we need people to cook, we need people with information, we need people to help us feel the emotions so that we can process them. But I suspect what's crucial is the posture. As we go about these behaviors in response to crisis, as we think about our own transformation and how God decides to use that, is it conscientiousness? We're just trying to be faithful to our tasks. Or is it a desire to feel that you're in control? Is it considered action because this is what's necessary at the time? Or is it a little compulsive and a little out of control? I think if we pay attention to our behaviors in this moment, it'll show a little bit about where our identity comes from. Our fears and our anxieties, the behaviors that we can't stop doing, even though we know we probably should, reveal something about who we think we are and who we believe God to actually be. So again, for me, um, I do like information. And so I find myself compulsively scrolling on social media, even though, when, even though I know I should do some other things. I know it would be better probably multiple times a day to just say, really, the number of cases that have been added in the last 24 hours does not actually affect my daily life. It would be more helpful for my own life to read a psalm right now than to scroll the latest CDC report. While it's helpful for me to know what my government is doing, in fact, the one thing necessary for me is to care for my children at home because I'm not going out. For uh, When I go to the grocery store to ask myself, while I know that there are shortages, do I need to buy that now? Or does buying that one extra thing that I do not in fact need in this next week or two demonstrate a desire for control by saying, I just had a little bit more, whatever it is, toilet paper, sausage. For me yesterday, it was um, onion and garlic so that I could cook a little bit more. Or would it be better just to leave it on the shelf because there would be a family following up behind me within the next few hours who actually need that because they have nothing now? Do I believe I am a dearly beloved child of God, secure in his embrace, or am I just trying to control the future? How do we enter um, the pandemic and receive it as an invitation to join this workshop of transformation? One of the stories that convicted me the most, I think, was a story I heard um, just this week from the Manhattan School of Music. Um, Alex is a student there. And just two weeks ago, or two and a half weeks ago, he started a small group Bible study at Manhattan School of Music. It's a small school, right? They're only 
I think 400 or 900 students there. So every Bible study makes an incredible difference. It's the impact that a small group would have, um, I think in uh, Kathy's community, right, of that circle, if a small group started there. The week after he started his small group, the school announced it was going to close. Um, and then he was in the hospital in the ER for two days um, and then later diagnosed with um, uh, type one diabetes, which he did not know he had. And so as you can imagine, everything about his world has been upended. His school has now shut down. He's been in the hospital, uh, in the ER for two days. He's now been diagnosed with a um, chronic condition that will affect the way he lives the rest of his life. And his entire future is now up in the air. And when our staff worker, Calvin Chan, uh, connected with him to say, how are you doing to check in? What Alex said to him was this, um, I need to start that small group up online. And Kelvin said, school's closed. You've just gotten out of the ER for two days. What are you talking about? He said, I've realized right now how short my life is. I've realized how unstable everything around me is. And if I don't invite my friends to know who God is, if I don't ground my life and their lives in the scripture, then I'm cheating them of the most important thing that they need in a moment like this. And I realize um, as I've had to think about my own future, this is the most important thing I could do. And I love for Alex how in the midst of chaos, both in his academic life and his physical life, um, he found his identity and he was able to ground himself in it. Um, he's a child of God who will not be dissuaded by the ways that his school has closed down or his body has now changed, um, but he's a child of God who can confidently invite people uh, to say, hey, do you want to join me in a Bible study wherever you are? We have Zoom. We can do it anytime. So that was about a month ago, five weeks ago, three weeks ago, right? Still seems like a long time ago, especially if you've been at home with kids. Every, this last week has felt like an eternity. Um, Dick preached on sensitivity, right? How do we say attentive to God's voice so that we hear his plans and his dreams for us? in both scripture and in listening to the spirit, right? Because part of what we believe is not only that we're grounded in our identity with Jesus, that we're no longer slaves to sin, but in fact, if we were to listen to the words of scripture and pay attention to the voice of the spirit, we would hear God's invitation to us. This is who I'm inviting you to be. This is the freedom I want to offer you. This is the hope that I want to speak into your despair. This is the tears that I want to shed along with you as you grieve and you need comfort. This is the warm embrace that I want to provide you, particularly those of you who are um, isolated and uh, not with people right now uh, because you live alone. If we be attentive to the voice of the Spirit at those moments, if we'd allow Scripture to shape us, how might God be using this um, period of social distancing to actually be a place where we hear Jesus more. So the questions I've been thinking about over the last week or two have been this, um, whose voice are you listening to and whose voices are you listening to in the season? Who on the news? For my doctor friends, um, Anthony Fauci over at the NIH has been the voice of confidence and cool. Many people around the country are saying, wow, your governor is doing far better than our governor in communicating clearly on this. And there are people in Texas, I saw, who were like, I'm tuning into New York because at least 
He's a little humorous and is being very clear, which is what I'm not getting. Now, right, whose voice are you listening to? Um, whose voice are you listening to not only in the news, but in your community? Whose voice are you hearing in your heart? Uh, for some of us, it's um, the voice of our parents or grandparents as they reflected on their own scarcity and it draws out fear and scarcity in our own heart. For some of us, it may be an older mentor or friend. For some of us, it's the anxiety of children or younger people. Whose voices are you hearing in your heart? Whose voice are you waiting for? And what are you hoping they will say? Or what are you afraid they will say? Part of what I think happens as we think about spiritual transformation in these kind of moments is um, paying attention to the voices we hear in our own hearts, paying attention to whose voice we want to hear, and then ask the question, are we being attentive to Jesus? Well, as we've been thinking about this workshop for transformation, I do want to get to the passage that we're looking at. As we've now settled into this kind of very not normal normal, um, Dick moved us last week to training, right? What does it mean to train, to be spiritually disciplined and enter this workshop of transformation that God has uh, invited us to? Um, and um, building, right, the muscles of self-control to train our appetites and our attention uh, so that we begin to pursue who Jesus has des designed us to be. And, I suspect for most of us, just following up on Dick's message last week, right, sheltering in place and sheltering at home has given us a lot of opportunities to say no to things, to give up many things, right? I'm feeling that super intensely. As I mentioned, my life is often defined by the travel I do for InterVarsity and the fact that all my travel between now and July has been canceled left me weirdly disoriented in a way that showed just how attached I was to travel as a form of identity and saying no to be present to my children while my wife goes out of the house to work um, is no to many things, including many assignments and projects I had intended to tackle at work that I'm now having to delay to accommodate the space that I need to do the things I'm actually called to do. Um, we're giving up opportunity and security as we do that. So let's look at this passage again um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. And let me read it again. Do you not know? that in a race, all runners run, but only one gets the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Right? One of the reasons we say no, as you all talked about last week, is to create space to say yes. Fasting creates space for longing and hunger, which leads us to prayer. Sabbath creates space for rest and worship and feasting and creating things. Lent creates space for grief, for repentance, and for attentiveness to God. And so Paul reminds us of our motivation for entering this workshop of spiritual transformation in verses 24 and 27, right? There's both a positive and negative that he describes that we should really grapple with. Positively, we want to win the prize, he says in verse 24. 
Now, Paul doesn't define what the prize is, but the image is that of the Isthmian Games, which I suspect Dick mentioned last week, right? It happened every two years on the second and fourth year um, on the Olympic cycle, which was every four years. And winners would get kind of an evergreen leaf crown. And the reality, of course, is any crown made of leaves begins to wilt almost within hours of it being created and certainly by days later is dried and beginning to crack and within months later is a ruined heap. And Paul says, if, if these athletes who you see every two years, Corinthians, who, who inundate our town and run and box and chariot race, um, and there were also uh, music and arts there, if every two years you know people have spent the better part of at least a year, if not two years, preparing for this to get a crown, that won't last at all. <clears throat> How much more you who've been offered eternal life should not aim for a crown that might last forever, right? And what would that crown be? Well, the New Testament uses a lot of imagery about crowns. It's the crown of righteousness that um, Paul talks about that's described in Revelation as well. It's the sense of ruling and reigning with God. <clears throat> it's the sense of um, God awarding you something, I suspect for most of us, right, what we really long for, if we're honest, and if we could hear the longing of our heart is at the end of our lives, do not, is not what we want most, God, just to say, well done. That's exactly how I wanted my children to act. Well done. You lived into the promise of being my child. Well done. You were salt and light when the world needed it most. You brought hope to those who were in the darkness of despair. You restrained evil where you were given a chance. You created beauty in places of deep brokenness. And so thank you, Pat, for that poem and that image, right? Well done. That Paul says, run towards that. To see your father's pride and joy and delight in you. And then Paul says, if that's the positive, then fear the negative. And I'm struck by what he says in verse 27, where he wrote, um, um, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for that prize. Um, think about Paul's statement there. After years of ministry, of sharing the gospel, of being an apostle um, throughout <clears throat> Asia and Europe, my great fear is that while I, have, I will have preached faithfully, I will not have lived faithfully. And all of us, I suspect, have watched in the last five to six years people in public ministry who started well and have ended poorly. <clears throat> right? The number of pastors and Christian leaders who have fallen, who've been taken out of ministry, has just been astounding, particularly because media will allow it. For most of us who aren't in, you know, vocational, <clears throat> they're not paid to be a Christian, um, we all know people who aren't ending well. Um, I've watched friends, colleagues, family members as they age. It seems like there are two routes that people take. There are people who, um, I think the only way to put it are, are they're ending poorly. They're, um, you meet them and you realize they're just cranky, unpleasant people toward the end of their life. That habits of bitterness and of complaint um, 
have become so habituated in their life that as you encounter them, you know that they're just, um, that every encounter with them brings you a little down. Um, I've often reflected on a few of my colleagues who I think have ended this way where they've had incredible ministries at times in their life, but at the, toward the end of their life, people are sort of half trying to avoid them while still honoring them and hoping that they'll just retire as soon as possible. Um, I've often said my goal at this stage of my life is when I finally retire and leave my place of work, I want people to be grieving rather than relieved. And there are other people, we all know them, right, who choice by choice, day by day, have decided to be affirming and encouraging, hopeful and faithful, gracious and patient, and toward the end of their lives, they're delightful. And that when you're with them, you feel hope. Not that there aren't rough edges or angular places in their life, right? Um, God will take his eternity to finish those pieces. But when you are with them, you think, oh, when many of the other things of my life get stripped away, I want to go out like that. For me at the church I grew up in, it was the older woman, it was um, Mrs. Yang, who when she would come to church, she was in her um, mid-80s at the point I most remember her. There was a sense of anticipation and hope as she would open the scripture on Sunday. There was a sense of joy as she sang. And even though I did not know her well, I knew if I walked toward her even, there would be a smile on her face. She would greet me and would bless me in some small way. I want to go out like that. And Paul says, look, pursue Jesus and get the Father's blessing, right, that crown. But don't, I, I fear living in such a way that I'm going to end poorly. And so he sets up our motivation. And then he uses these sports metaphors. Now, for those of you who've watched, who've known me for the decades, you know, I, I don't get sports metaphors. Um, I don't play sports. I get most of my sports news from NPR, and it's still too much. But Paul goes into this somewhat extended athletic metaphor. And the point I think of the athletic metaphor is what do you need to say yes to to enter this workshop of transformation? So I'm going to share the few things I know about actual sports training, all of which I've gotten from reading and not from actually doing. And so this is highly abstract knowledge, but I've been assured that it's actually true. Um, so here we go. What do I know about athletics besides zero? One, training includes both physical movement and focused attention right? Um, the reality is your body moves where your eyes focus and um, embodiment matters as we think about our training. So the way I've had to think about this is, do you remember learning to drive or ride a bike? And do you remember how if you didn't keep your eyes straight on the road, but you began to look at what was going on, on the side, your car inevitably began to move in that direction, and then you would bump into the curb if you were going slow enough? Or in my case, as I would look over there, I'd hear the panic scream of my parent, stop, stop, look forward. <laughs> I'd have to write myself, right? The reality is wherever we train our attention, we begin to drift in that direction. And athletes know that this is true as well, right? That um, to do training, it requires not just that your body um, go through the motions, but sometimes even just visualizing the activity makes a difference. And so if you're a piano player, you know, even if you are not pra physically practicing, sometimes mentally running through the piece to get your mind in the right place actually helps your body. 
to do that. So I want to say that in part, as you think about what you say yes to, it should involve your body, not just the internal side of your life. Because I think there's a kind of tendency for many churches, particularly evangelical churches, to be super agnostic about our spiritual disciplines. And it's all inside our head and mind and heart. And that sometimes physically doing something is the way to inculcate the kind of discipline that we need. Two, another thing I know about athletic training, training requires repetition until it becomes automatic. Training, um, repeating that stroke, if you're in tennis, the, you can watch this analogy breakdown as I begin to use it because I don't know the actual gestures. Like whatever it is when you throw a basketball, there, there's probably a word for that. Uh, batting, if you're in baseball, I'm gonna stop now. But right, it's the thousands of repetitions of that behavior that are crucial because what you're doing is you're training your body in muscle memory so that you do the things that you need to do when you need to do them without having to think, right? They become habit and instinct rather than thought. So I've been told baseballs move super fast, 70-ish miles per hour. I you baseball people know what this, right? They move super fast. And the reality is when they've measured how much time a batter has before they have to decide whether to swing or not and how they will swing, it's in the tenths of a second, far faster than actually our brains can cognitively process. What's happened at that time is because they've been hitting that ball several thousand times, their bodies are able to make a decision in the tenths of a second before their conscious brain can actually tell, tell them what's going on and they know how to swing or not to swing. Right? It's the jumper who's not thinking, what foot am I going to leap off of? But they just know when they're running toward the pole vault. I'm sorry. Like, this is why I shouldn't use a sports metaphor, but Paul does. Right? When they're jumping toward the high bar, they're no longer thinking about what foot they're doing. They're just letting their body go. Right? No gymnast before they do whatever difficult thing they do by throwing themselves in the air and spinning is thinking super hard about what they need to do next. They've trained themselves to automatically do it. And part of what saying yes to these disciplines does is it takes the instinctive God-honoring Christ-centered response out of our conscious hands and then we just reflexively do what Jesus would have us do in those moments. That's why we train our children to say thank you, right? So that whether they're thankful or not, when they get that gift from that relative who always gives them that kind of odd gift, they just automatically say thank you, right? That's why they say thank you to people who everybody else doesn't notice. So I was um, leading a large conference of college students at a hotel several years back. And I checked in with the waitstaff. How is it going? Is there anything I could do to make your jobs easier while you're serving all of these students very quickly? And one of the waitresses said with tears in her eyes, you know, what's really astounding is we don't need any help because your students are so polite. I mean, they look me in the eye and they say, thank you. And I said, okay. And she goes, you don't understand. I serve banquets all day. People pretend I don't even exist. To have these students look me in the eye and just reflexively say, thank you. I feel like I'm seen and valued as a person for the first time in weeks at this job, right? The students weren't thinking hard about, I must say thank you to the hotel staff, though honestly I did remind them of that the first night. But reflexively, they did the things that give people dignity without having to consciously do it. They knew reflexively how to be gracious 
we need to learn the disciplines that allow us to say, I am sorry, will you forgive me? How can I serve you? What could I do in that same kind of way? Um, the last thing I'll say about athletic training that I think Paul is kind of getting at, right? When he says, I'm not running aimlessly, I'm, I'm not just boxing in the air, I'm actually physically working on this, is training isolates specific movements so that the whole comes together. Um, I've been told, right, uh, for golfers, you might just spend weeks just learning to stand properly and hold your club. Um, it may just be one part of the swing that you're working on. How do you raise your golf club in the air? Right? For swimmers, it may just be, I want you to dive in the water. We're going to work on that dive so that you, before you start swimming for a week, just so that we pick up that tenth of a second. What coaches and athletes cannot do is work on everything all the time with equal intensity. And the danger for many of us as we think about spiritual growth is that. We want to do it all, and really what we need to do is work on one, maybe two things, in order to keep us focused. So it may be an area of weakness. For example, if you struggle with greed or scarcity, this is a season to be generous. <clears throat> to give generously to people in need, uh, to spend money to buy resources for some people that you can't. Here um, in my suburb, because um, it's a very consumeristic suburb. The way that people are trying to channel their social justice concern right now is we should order out more to support local businesses, which is actually true. Um, and people are actually spending more money at restaurants to keep restaurants workers working. And it's also kind of a weirdly self-satisfying uh, way to do it. But um, that's how we're rolling here in the Western suburbs of Chicago. It may be an area of strength that you work on, right? Because athletes don't only minimize their weaknesses, they actually build on their areas of strength. And so uh, what would it look like if you're actually gifted in prayer to say, you know what, I don't have to commute anymore. I could put an extra five minutes in to pray for people who need prayer. Um, so I'm going to end really quickly this way. Um, the context of Paul's, Paul in 2 Corinthians is really about the evangelistic call that was before him, right? And how does he become all things to all people? I was trying to think about what would be um, a discipline I might commend to you or two disciplines I might commend to you in this weird stay-at-home, shelter-in-place season. And if part of what Paul was trying to do was to reach people around him, then could I suggest maybe what we could do in this socially distancing season is to invest in community and gratitude. Not just by a gratitude list, but what would it look like to connect and deepen with the people around us? In particular, I wonder whether as a physical discipline, what would it look like if CBC daily began to send emails or heaven forfend an actual written letter to somebody that God has put in your life that you value and let them know it? Imagine if, I think there's like 40 plus families on this line, imagine if 40 to 80 emails went out every day from CBC to somebody that you know, maybe in your community, maybe to somebody who passed, and your letter started with, in this era of social distancing, I'm deeply aware of how God has used people in my life and the community I have, and I wanted to thank you. Here are five things that I deeply appreciate about you that I wanted you to know in this season. How might that actually reduce the distance people are feeling right now? 
How might the very act of writing tune our hearts to sing God's praise? How might those, those emails that you send and the emails that may come back in response tighten the network of relationships, which our um, very already atomized age have so um, distressed? How might it open doors for deeper conversations about need and hope? Right? This is something children can do. It's something that adults can do. It's something that can be done together as a family. Um, but saying yes to the discipline of community and gratitude might be an incredible gift to people right now. The last suggestion I want to make is, um, what would it look like if you acknowledged your need for help in this season? Um, part of the danger of sheltering in place is that we hunker down we might think about kind of dramatic need, but your own need, um, this may be the right season to reach out. Um, I've watched a lot of counselors online saying, if you need an appointment, we can still talk by Skype. I've watched a number of spiritual directors say, I would love to have spiritual direction appointments with people who are really struggling right now. For some of us, what we need is to say yes to a relationship that will help us grow emotionally or spiritually. And while we can't do it face to face, this may be a season where we say, I'm at least going to reach out to somebody whose faith or mental health I respect and ask for some of the help that I need. Um, it's easy to believe the people around us are already overwhelmed and too busy. And yet I suspect for many of us, um, a conversation filled with meaning, a conversation that we feel like we were helping someone and being helped by them as we talk, I would provide structure and beauty in a time when most of us are just needing to get by. It's a crazy time of life. And my encouragement to you all, dear friends at CBC, who I miss a lot and who I love dearly, would be as you enter this workshop of transformation, what do you need to say yes to in this season? So that in this particular era, um, COVID-19 and all the changes aren't just distractions from the life that God has given us, but in fact, the context where he says, I intend to uniquely meet you in the season. I intend to bless you and to keep you. I intend to cause you to flourish. I intend you to experience my love and to communicate my love to others. So blessings, friends. Let me pray, and then I will hand it back over to Dick. Um, Father, you are in charge, and you are in control, and we're not. And that's incredibly good news because we are not sufficient in strength, power, insight, or wisdom to do the things that need to be done. So, Father, uh, glorify yourself, I pray, um, and help us to become the people you call us to be. Amen.